Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I doubt very much whether uh, Commodore Banks really needs an introduction, but some of you may not know that he's a commander of the Legion of Honor and also the Legion of Merit. I'm not going to tell you about all the jobs he's done so successfully through life, but I might mention that he served afloat in the RNVR during the First War. And uh, he's been associated with oil or with engines throughout most of his life ever since. And at the present moment, he's the director of Hawker Siddeley Aviation Limited. So, may I ask uh, Commodore Banks to kindly give us his lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, although I'm going to speak of things between wars, I think you should know uh, about what the person who's lecturing to you, what his education has been and all that sort of thing beforehand. And you may know something about me between wars and during the war, but you certainly don't know how I was brought up. And I'm just going to say that I left school at 14 and I started an engineering apprenticeship in my father's works. It's a small machine shop in Dalston, the east end of London. And we did, um, he was very keen on motor cars. He drove about the third or fourth or fifth, perhaps, motor car in England. He went across the States in 1898 and bought some steam car chassis and ran them in a one in the thousand miles trial of 1900. And in his little shop, he made all sorts of things. He was a keen air gun enthusiast in the time of the Boer War. I was alive then, but I didn't remember much about it. Um, he, uh, a lot of people practiced with air rifles to, well, they thought the Boers were coming into England, I don't know, but perhaps for volunteers before they went out there. They had air rifles in those days, but they weren't licensed and things like that. My father invented a famous slug for an air uh, rifle. But in his little shop, he made bits and pieces for the hen and flying people, and that's how I came quite close to aero engines in those days. And uh, we used to go to Hendon quite a lot. He was friends of Henry and Morris Farman. And in fact, my first flight was with Chevy Yard, who was the chief test pilot of Henry Farman, 1913. Uh, then I went, after a year, a little bit more here, I went up to East Anglian Ice Company to learn about refrigeration and uh, complete my apprenticeship. Uh, while there, I uh, got more keen on the internal combustion engine rather than refrigeration, and I took lessons from the chief designer of J.W. Brookham Company who made motorboats and made engines for them. And I took lessons from the chief designer, Stanley Rose, who taught me how to draw and how to do uh, various sections and elevations and things. 
We didn't have third angle projection, which you people know now, but I never understood it anyhow, so it didn't matter. Um, it always looked wrong to me, but still, they tell me it's the thing to do nowadays. But uh, interesting about books was they, in those days, I'm talking about 1914, early 14, they designed and built an engine, uh, 300 horsepower, an eight-cylinder V-type, which was quite an innovation then, uh, for their racing boats. And they had one or two well-known owners, for instance, Hollingsworth, of Bourne and Hollingsworth, the Drapers, he was keen on motorboat racing, and it was quite a thing in those days. And he had two boats called, one called Cordon Rouge, which was named after his, fam his favorite champagne, and uh, Crusader, which was another boat. And we used to race them down at Monaco and round the um, watering places in England under the auspices of the, I think, the Royal Motor Yacht Club. Well, then the war started, so I was about sixteen and a half then. I tried to get successively and unsuccessfully into the Royal Flying Corps, and then they wouldn't have me because they wanted a birth certificate. And then the RNAS, and that was the same answer. The Navy didn't so, seem so particular, so I put my age up to eighteen and got in the Navy, and I was in minesweepers, motor torpedo boats, and such like. It helped me after the war because in those days, while one wanted a degree and I hadn't got the education to get a degree, it helped you in those days to have had a five-year to seven-year apprenticeship. I barely made a five-year and that was, that was by sort of chicanery because uh, in putting the two years on my age when I joined up, I got five years apprenticeship roughly when I finished the war, you see. So now that's purely uh, just to give you a background. I will show most of this, a uh, lot of slides, and I'm going to show you some of the war boats I was concerned with. And so we'll have the first picture. That is a motor launch, and uh, it was on anti-submarine work. It was my own launch, number 263. It had a 13-pounder short-barrel gun up forward, and it had depth charges, a lot of depth charges, which you can't see here because at that time it hadn't got more than about four, uh, all along the side rails here and aft. Uh, these boats were interesting. They're made by the Electric Boat Company in America, all wood and nailed together. And they had two 220 horsepower six-cylinder engines, 460 revs, and they were open crankcase jobs, drip feed lubrication. And when you had the type of admiralty waste they gave you to wipe things down, it always caught in the drip feed, and then of course it missed where it should go, and then you had a proper seizure in the engine because it didn't even have white metal in the bearings; they were bronze bearings. So if you had a seizure, the whole engine pulled up solid. It had 2,000 gallons of petrol in the back, in the stern part, in tanks, which were firmly wedged in the, fuse, in the uh, hull. And so if you worked in a seaway at all, it usually spilled out and came into the bilges. And there's always such an aroma of petrol in these boats 
But when we put into port and we lit the valor perfection stove to warm ourselves up in the cabin, quite often the roof came off because uh, you had a lot of petrol there. So. The range was about 1,000 miles at about 15 knots. Top speed was just short of 20, about 19 knots. And um, there were about 550 of them built in America and some built by Vickers in uh, Canada, Montreal. The interesting thing about the short barrel gun was that if you happened occasionally, you always try to aim the gun in the same fore and aft direction of the boat, but one occasion I know we just got a submarine in our sights on the beam, and it was very interesting because the barrel was so short and the boat was rolling so much, you either put a shell right down by the side of the boat or it went over the horizon. And they changed them afterwards, those guns, to a six-pounder shoulder mounted, if you remember the Hotchkiss mounting. And that's uh, one or two of them in a rough sea taken from my boat in the North Sea. You had to have a good stomach. Uh, this is a motor torpedo boat, which uh, built by Thornycraft with two 275-375 horse later engines, which has a torpedo in it down a trough in the middle here, and four depth charges, and they went quite fast. They were 35 to 37 knots, according to the engine you had. They were a stepped hydroplane, and we worked on the Belgian coast with them against uh, German destroyers in uh, Zeebrugge and those places. We used to go in there all night work on those jobs. And uh, they're made out of two skins of mahogany diagonal built. And uh, they were quite sporting affairs. As a matter of fact, our losses in eight, 1918 on a purely percentage basis were higher than any other arm of the service. And it was quite emotioning to go into Zeebrugge when they had everything sort of bearing at you. They gave us what they call rose-tinted glasses against the searchlights, but I never discovered on a searchlight full in your face what good they were because they got spray on them and everything else. And you'd come in to... Uh, uh, we'd take photographs, the Air Force gives photographs what was lying along the mole, and you had to stand a fair way off to torpedo them. And in the middle of Zeebrugge Harbour, there's a mud bank. And uh, your initial dive depth of a torpedo is about 19 feet. And usually they exploded in the mud bank. And then, of course, you had to complete your circuit. But while you're outside, they got everything to bear on you, except the very heavy guns, machine guns and all that sort of thing, down the searchlight beams. When you got near, and you finished your circuit to get out, they used to lob small grenades of some sort. I know this, you couldn't hear them with all the noise of your own engines. You couldn't hear them coming. The next thing you knew, the whole of your deck came off. Now that's an interesting picture. You haven't got anything about engines yet, but you're not going to just yet. Now that's the motor torpedo boats on the 1st of March in Baku in uh, Caspian Sea in Russia. Those merchant vessels of the Russian Volunteer Navy, they were merchant ships manned uh, or commanded by Imperial Russian Army officers who had not turned Bolshevik in those periods. But the crews had turned Bolsheviks and they took the ships out and threatened to shell Baku. 
here you are, Baku here. We were sent out, we'd only just arrived there, we hadn't run our torpedoes and we didn't, hadn't done any testing. We were to, told to get them in and arrest them. Well, that was easier said than done. We got the flagship and gave him a warning and he wouldn't come in, so we fired a torpedo. And rather to our chagrin, the torpedo just bobbed up short of him. It didn't run, in other words, and another one bobbed up and didn't run. And then just quite fortuitously, a, a depth charge fell off one of the boats. It was choppy, actually, further out. And he went off with a fearful bang, and they all came in. Uh, we fired at the flagship's bridge to make him a little bit more responsive with a machine gun. And we had Gurkhas with their cookery knives to uh, arrest the crews when they come. They're much more frightened of the Gurkhas than they were of us. And I always remember going into the cabin of the, I don't know whether it was a flagship, one of the ships at any rate, and I asked for the captain, they said he's in this cabin, I went in this cabin, there was the captain on the floor with the front of his forehead blown out and a rifle by his side. So I got the first officer and the crew around and I said, well, uh, who shot the captain, you see? So they said, well, uh, he committed suicide, he was so disgraced with this, you see. Well, I said, it's difficult enough to shoot yourself through the back of the head with a revolver, but how he did it with a rifle, God knows. <laughs> Now, this comes to my point of the lecture, perhaps. I've been a little bit frivolous up to now. But after the war, obviously, and not having had much experience, I was in that crew. I took six motor torpedo boats across the Caucasus on railway trucks, and I was a captain of one of them, and I was an engineer in charge of the whole lot. And I was also in submarines for a very brief period during the war when the Grand Fleet was waiting for the Germans to come out again, they wouldn't release RN officers, so I had diesels on submarine that. On that score in my apprenticeship, I was an engineer accordingly. Um, but I had to get more experience, and my father had six children, and uh, he couldn't afford to give me uh, any uh, sort of formal education. So I decided to take my experience as a by boosting up my apprenticeship, which I didn't fully have, and uh, take jobs on. And I saw in uh, the engineer once, yeah, just after the war, an advertisement for a diesel man wanting, wanted to uh, install diesel engines in ships. And a firm of naval architects in Newcastle on Tyne and I went there, and I went all over the place for them, putting diesel engines in ships. I'd never put a diesel engine in a ship before, but I learned that the hard way, you see. And I still wanted to get into aviation. And in the same paper, the engineer or engineering, I don't know which it was, after a few years with this firm, taking various ships to sea, like with Salts as Burmeister and Waynes and things like that, I saw that a diesel engineer was wanted for um, uh, converting a big petrol engine intended for an airship to a diesel. And this was the engine. And eventually it was destined to take the place of the Beardmore engines in the R101. And uh, 
<coughs> because it was a bigger horsepower, it was about not quite twice the horsepower of the Beardmore engines. But I was to get the thing running on petrol properly and in, get it reliable and then convert it into a diesel engine. Now this is quite aptly named the Stromboli. It was designed by a fellow called Ettore Lanzarotti Spina. He's an Italian and he, a very nice gentleman. He was quite a good mechanical designer, but he knew damn all about thermodynamics. Now this engine was 12 inches bore by 16 inches stroke, and it drove, a tw intended to drive, a 20-foot propeller direct drive. And uh, like a lot of these things, it was patented round the valve gear. The rest of the engine didn't matter. It had eight valves per cylinder and four inlets and four exhausts, four sparking plugs. It needed all of them, I might tell you. And um, it's about five to one compression ratio. And it detonated on a fuel, which we would know now as about 70 octane, at five to one compression ratio. And it used to lift the cylinder covers because the detonation used to run into pre-ignition. Great flames used to come out from the covers. It was quite exciting running it. And this is an aluminium crankcase here, and it was one of the very early crankcases uh, using this low expansion alloy, silicon alloy. You could almost see the silicon in bubbles around it. It was so badly disposed around the crankcase. And the scantlings of the crankcase were so uh, small, I mean, the scandings weren't much bigger than the 300 horsepower Fiat's we had on those motor torpedo boats. And one day we eventually had to fit a flywheel here uh, to with the same mass moment of inertia as a 20-foot propeller. And um, I was running it up on a power curve one day and I saw the flywheel describe an ellipse and I cut it back as soon as I could but not soon enough and it went gracefully through the side of the test shop out that way and uh, finished, up, finished, up, finished up in the field. Uh, that was a Stromboli, which as you know is a volcanic island off the Italian coast. That was purely another crankcase, a steel crankcase, which was built for the thing after the aluminium one packed up. It was hacked out of solid steel. There was a di bearing diaphragm at each of these points you see, most of these points you see along here. And uh, it ruined all the milling machines in the shop because it was made out of 90 tons steel and uh, that was pretty high, tough stuff in those days. That's the cylinder head of the Stromboli with the eight valves round the periphery so you can see those of you who know anything about combustion and cylinder heads shows quite the wrong shape of cylinder head. It was completely subordinated to the uh, to the valve arrangement. That's a carburetor, one carburetor of it, and there's the piston and there's the gudgeon pin. Uh, you can get the scale because that piston is 12 inches diameter. Zenith's made the carburetor. It's a weir type carburetor. It had no float chambers. You pumped over a weir at a certain level and pumped away again. I'm only showing this agglomeration of forgings. We at Peter Hooker's, where uh, this engine was made, 
Peter Hooker's was an extraordinary firm. It took the license of the first Nome engine in 1913, which is quite a long way back, and they made the best Nome engine during the war. And uh, after the war, we uh, developed at Peter Hooker's a forged wire alloy, light alloy, which was for pistons and things. That was Halford's first connecting rod for a gypsy engine, this one. That was Halford's Jaguar engine piston. And it was very successful, this uh, material. In fact, those of you, like Sir Vernon Brown here and one or two others, will remember the old obturator ring in the gnome engine with the cast iron piston. Well, what we were able to do with this, we made a forged wire alloy piston and used three quite normal rings on it and did away with the obturator ring and put a lot of life on the Monosapap gnome engine, which was used for many years after the war in the Avro 504 as a training machine uh, engine by all the air forces in the world pretty well. The interesting part of this was that in the Jaguar piston, Siddeley's had the biggest order in their history, or in any engine company's history, post-war order, for aero engines for their Jaguar engine. And just when this order was given, we went into liquidation. I joined the firm knowing it was involuntary liquidation, but it gave me an entree to a lot of people in the ministry, like Cave, Brown Cave, and Hines, and all those sort of people, and Fell, and later on, Bowman, Major Bowman, who you know is our honorary treasurer. Bowman was, after Fell went into industry, when he was going down to Farnborough, he didn't want to go to Farnborough, so he went into industry. And then Hines took his job at Farnborough, and Bowman took his job in um, the ministry and Bowman for 16 years uh, did encourage and help the aero engine industry. Well, at any rate, they got an order for an enormous number of Jaguar engines and there was the company gone bust. So Devereux, our works manager, who was a very lively sort of person, he asked, he went to Sidley, Lord Kenilworth, as you perhaps know, and um, borrowed some money from him and bought back all the stamps and hammers and muffles that Alfred Herbert had bought when we auctioned, when the firm was auctioned off, and set up in Slough to make these Jaguar pistons. And that is the birth of high-duty alloys. That was the birth of high-duty alloys in 1928, roughly. Don't hold me to a year, but that's roughly about the time. That's a crown case built for the Stromboli with the enthusiasm of Farnborough. It's a Warren Girder thing. Tubes, uh, struts, Warren Girder struts holding the bearings inside and uh, you can see the strutting to stiffen the crankcase outside. I think it would have been quite all right, but the expense was nobody's business. But we never used it. It was just there, that's all. That's the single-cylinder version of the Stromboli, where we used to do our endurance tests of valve gear, performance, and all sorts of things. It's a cast iron crankcase and cylinder. 
except it was a 12 inch bore and not a 16, uh, 12 inch stroke, not a 16, it's 12 by 12. But it was run up a little higher speed to give about the same piston speed. And that's a broken cylinder that caused a bit of a fracas once it came off, uh, on the single cylinder one day when we were running it a bit up in power. And it came right off. And the mess the piston made with that flywheel, which was a half a ton thrashing around, is nobody's business. That's the crankshaft of the Stromberg. It's about 10 feet long. For those of you interested in fuel, this is a Stromberg cylinder head which shows the valve arrangement, which is quite contrary to decent cylinder head shapes. And that's the normal piston. Well, I designed a piston for a single cylinder, which certainly improved it by about two ratios of compression. These were uh, equally disposed around the cylinder four sparking plugs. And what I did was to make a pent roof cylinder down the longitudinal axis of the engine, and so give them a bit of squish turbulence here and a squish turbulence here, and since these were two exhaust valves, and there were two inlet valves the other side. It split the head up nicely into four valves each side of the of the piston, and uh, it was worth about one and a half ratios, to be fair to it. And it was the first engine, I think, being tried outside farm on tetraethyl lead. And I found that when I put tetraethyl lead in the Ministry fuel, which was then 1820, 80 gasoline, 20 benzol, that that really did cure our troubles. But when Peter Hooker's folded, the engine folded, and of course the loss of the 100, R101 was uh, finally put a paid to the um, airship program. That I'm showing you because that Scott Payne's little racing boat in the thir early 30s, where I supplied some fuel for him. It was Napier, Schneider Napier engine, which he went down, he went to America to try and uh, take the Harmsworth Trophy from Gar Wood, but it just, it was very good. Horsepower by horsepower, it was quite fast. It was about 97 or 98 miles an hour, I, I, I don't remember now. Now, the one event which I think really put us in the picture ever afterwards on engines and marked the uh, importance of fuel and engines was the Schneider Trophy. If you remember, the first time the Schneider Trophy was supported officially in this country was in 1927 when the Schneider Trophy was won at Venice by Webster in a Submarine S5. Now that was the first officially thing. That was with a Napier Lion engine with 10 to 1 compression ratio and gave about 800 odd horsepower. It's interesting to know on that engine that was leaded fuel was used in certain race engines for the first time. At 10 to 1 we got pretty well the theoretical efficiency of a constant volume engine which uh, at 0.32 pounds per brake horsepower hour fuel consumption so it was quite remarkable it wasn't a supercharged engine 
And it had a very high mechanical efficiency because it had roller bearings and things like that. Well then, in 1929, the, um, the government decided, I mean, Bowman's crowd decided that the Napier was towards the end of its tether on power, although they were going to supercharging, and they asked Rolls to come in on, uh, to give them more horsepower. And Mitchell of Supermarines wanted roughly about 1800 horsepower, and just remember the Napier line that period was 800. Supercharged, it eventually gave about 1300. Well now, it's rather interesting because when Rolls were asked to participate, Basil Johnson, who was managing director of Rolls at that time, he was the brother of the famous Claude Johnson who made Rolls-Royce, who was a managing director, who brought Rolls and Royce together and made the name Claude. Well, Basil Johnson hadn't got any foresight at all, and he thought that their future was wrapped up in motor cars and at first refused to countenance the ministry's request. But Royce and Hives and that crowd stopped all that nonsense and then uh, the Rolls came into the act in 29 with a, with a racing engine. And later Basil Johnson's place was taken by Sid Reeves. Now this is the engine that you see here which is the prototype of the famous racing R engine of Rolls-Royce. It's a 36.6-litre engine, it's called the H or Buzzard engine. It gave about 800 horsepower in that guise. A few were sold, not many had been sold, some for some Japanese flying boats, and I believe the Blackburns had one in a flying boat, I'm not sure. Now this is the Ryan engine made from that engine, designed from that engine, where to get plenty of blow in it, to get the 1800 horsepower from the 800 horsepower, they put a double-sided blower, the carburetors were here, and they, they sucked in each side of that blower. That was mainly for installational reasons, so that they could get the engine in the machine at the smallest compass, and the camshaft covers were formed to pick up the aerodynamic shape on the aeroplane, which was a Supermarine 6, 6A. And this is the forward air intake which Rolls developed. It took the kinetic energy of 400 miles an hour or 300 odd miles an hour and turned it into pressure energy at the carburetor and it was worth a pound and a half or two of, uh, of boost, you see, so you got more boost throughout the engine. And that engine, in its early form, gave about 1850 horsepower. I supplied the fuel for it. But they'd run it first on pure benzoil, and it overheated, and the valves burned, and all sorts of things. And then, but I didn't have much time to do anything with that. I had to, uh, I merely diluted the benzoil. We only had a month to mess about, or less than a month. I diluted the benzoil with a very heavily leaded gasoline so as to cut the benzoil down. And uh, you will remember that that won the Schneider Trophy of 1929. Now you'll see some famous figures here, of course. 
there's Tresillian on the far left, who was with Rolls and helped Rolls, the designer at Rolls. Uh, he died. At, he went to Bristol some years ago, and he died about five, six, or seven years ago. I don't remember. He designed the Lagonda twelve-cylinder car, and uh, there is Dory who is now general manager, director and general manager of uh, of uh, the Rolls-Royce company at Crew, the motor car company at Crew. He was the test chief, who I, this is me here in case you don't know it, um, worked with. Hallowell had been the test chief in 29, and Hallowell was killed when Seagrave tried to get the world speed record in boats on Windermere with one of these engines and uh, hit something and went to pieces and Hallowell went and Dory took over his place, very energetic, very able. And I just want to point out me again, this is me here, you see. The bowler hat, I point out, is was a uniform which when one worked in shipyards one always wore. That was to prevent people dropping hot rivets on your head. This was the test rig, the test bed. Open exhaust, all we had was plug ear, not these nice defenders you get on your ears now, but all the little plug things. And the boost pipe, representing the 400 mile an hour wind in the aeroplane, came down here, in the carburetor intake there. And when that thing was going flat out, about 18 pounds plus boost with 12 six inch 12 six-inch cylinders going, believe me, you didn't really hear for a week. This is the Kestrel engine driving the blower to supply the boost. Well, it's another, well that's another view of the engine on the test bed. You can see the pipe, the Peter head pipe there. And that's the ventilating fan, which was a Kestrel engine with a propeller on it which kept going while we were running inside because otherwise the temperature rise would have been too much. And also to keep the exhaust fumes out. We were given hot milk in the morning or during the running to keep down the CO in our systems. Now this, this I put in because there's a short Crusader Mercury. It was Bristow's support got short and Carter, Carter designed the thing and this was the first Mercury engine, the first Bristol Mercury engine designed by Fedden and uh, it had helmet cowling as you see here gave about 800 odd horsepower, 880 horsepower the crankcase was magnesium, it was very light and unfortunately this was in the Venice race it was sent out to Venice and they crossed the ailerons, and so the wretched Schofield, when he took it off, he did a clambering turn the wrong way, and went into the drink. And um, I always remember this, but the time they f pulled the engine out of the drink, and the aeroplane out of the drink, the, the crankcase was fizzing like a sedlitz powder. And we got even holes in it by the time we got it up. It would have done about the same, slightly slower than the Gloucester machine it was, about 220 or 30, 230 or 40, I, I can't remember now. Now these are famous people here. There's Oliver, 
the command of the high-speed flight, Stainforth, who got killed in the last war, Waghorn, who won the 1929 Schneider Trophy, Darcy Gregg, well, I can't remember, Moon, the engineer, Batchelor, yes, Batchelor was uh, the very end there, the present Batchelor, who's, who's alive now. This is the Prince of Wales with the Italian high-speed flight. That's Colonel Banasconi, he's still alive, he's general in Turin now. Ferrarin, Dalmolin, and this little fellow here was the fellow who did the world speed record afterwards. Um, I can't remember his name now, but I should... Agello, that's right. That's General Balbo with some of the high-speed flights. He was the head of the Italian Air Force at that time. He got very nice plus fours on, I thought. And this is uh, Italians and the Crown Prince of Italy with the Italians and the British all together. Present King of Italy, I suppose, ex-King of Italy. That's yellow. That's the uh, Mackey machine that came over in the 29 Schneider Trophy with a Fiat engine in and the surface radiators on the side here, oil coolers and radiators. That's the Voimachetti S65, that is, with outrigger tail and everything, with two engines in and a cell fore and aft. And I'm going to show you a peculiar animal, which was a Piaggio P7. This floated on the water, and it had a marine propeller, which got it up on hydroplanes, and then you started the main, uh, the main propeller, clutched the main propeller in and it's supposed to fly. Whether it ever flew, I never really discovered. That is the famous S6B that finally took the Schneider Trophy for us, plus the world speed record. That actual photograph was stained forth after the speed record. And um, I made a special fuel. It was interesting because hives who had a sort of a sixth sense for these things, he said, well, it's no use getting 399.9 miles an hour. We must have over 400. And it was just before that, after Boothman had had the flyover on the record, that uh, the Air Ministry, with great imagination, decided to close the whole base up and turn it to, over to flying boats. And uh, it was quite traditional that after every Schneider Trophy, when everybody was assembled to do the world speed record, but no, they were going to close it up and we hadn't got time and all that sort of thing. We could fly it if we liked as it was. Well, Hyde's wasn't content with that. Hyde's been flight wasn't content with that. Eventually, they got Sir Henry Royce to intercede and um, the ministry held back and I went up to Derby and I said, what can we do? So I said, well, we can give you a fuel if you can stand the consumption on the strip, on the uh, three-kilometer course, um, which will give you about another couple of hundred horsepower. We might get some more horsepower putting up the gear supercharger ratio. Well, now, that particular engine for the race was giving 2350 horsepower, so I went back and Dory and I started mixing up cocktails and we got, with a gear, higher gear ratio blower, we got um, 
2,800 plus horsepower, out of one engine, about 2,830 horsepower. Then we started pulling things about and the cylinder head bolts started shearing and so we decided to bring back the gear ratio and I gave them actually about 250 horsepower more, so it finished up about 2650, 2600, 2650. And Stainforth got the record and it got it at over 400 miles an hour, 407 miles an hour. This is the Italian machine. Uh, the Italians weren't in time for the speed record, uh, for the Schneider Trophy. And I was asked, General Crocco was the doyen of aerodynamicists and uh, aeronautical engineers in Europe and in Italy was asked to get hold of me to come out and do the development of the Italian engines, which I did. I won't, I don't think time permits to go into long a story about that, but the Italian engine was an interesting engine. It was two engines put together, but not mechanically geared. They only mechanically held together uh, on a common crankcase, of course. The crankshafts were separate, and the rear engine drove the shaft that went through the hollow shaft of the front engine, and the rear engine had the supercharger on it. Uh, and this had adjustable pitch propellers, and to get the revs about the same, you had to run the machine up on the tarmac and uh, on the slipway and then adjust the propeller blades stopping and starting again to get about the same revs because obviously the rear engine driving the uh, supercharger gave less horsepower at the shaft than the front engine you see and that was the thing but uh, when I went there they were they'd, they only got about 2350 horsepower out of the engine that was about 57 litres against the Rolls-Royce 36 litres. And uh, they had run for 2800 horsepower for a minute, but what I had to do was to get it developed so that we did one hour at full throttle at full rating of the speed test, which was about 26, between nearly 2700 horsepower. And then do a test, a cyclic test, representing throttling back uh, full speed, then throttling back at each end of a six kilometer, six runs up and down the kilometer, uh, three kilometer course. And uh, we eventually did it, and the Italians took the world speed record from us at about 422.9 miles an hour, 440 uh, 422.9 miles an hour was the first time, and then Angelo had another go a little later and got 440. That's him, it's really a sketch, it didn't a photograph, him taking off for the world speed record at Lake Garda, Desenzano. Um, I'll tell you a little tale about that. Uh, the poet Denuncio was banished by the Italian government to, 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 to Lake Garda, but given a very good villa and a motor torpedo boat to sort of a yacht. And uh, he used to come and see us every so often, and he invited the high-speed flight and myself up for dinner at nights. He had exotic tastes in his bungalow in his house. He had velvet drapes and onyx tap 
onyx baths and gold taps and he uh, always thought, why he thought it, I don't know, but he always thought Britishers smoked wild woodbine cigarettes. So when we left, when we left after these parties, he used to present me with whiskey, a bottle of Johnny Walker whiskey, and about 500 of these wretched wild woodbine cigarettes, <laughs> which I distributed round the crew of the uh, high-speed flight. But we had some very successful runs, but the interesting part about this, that they'd killed three pilots on this job, and I had to discover why the engine blew up. It was through the engine blowing up. And I showed you the pictures of the forward air intake at Rolls. Well, the Italians had used this forward air intake in the aeroplane, but were very coy about showing it to me. And they didn't use it on the test bed. Well, quite obviously, those of you knowledgeable about this thing will know that what we found out at Rolls, actually, was this, that if you don't have a forward intake, obviously no pressure on the intake side of the car, your pressure differential across the carburetor is greater. Well, when you put the forward air intake on, it was less, and so you had to open up your jets. Well, what happened on a fixed-pitch propeller with these jobs is that they tested all the engines on the test beds, they put them in the plane, and they put the forward air intake on, and, of course, the propeller was not unstalled until it was winding up and diving on the speed course. At that period, the jets were too weak, and she blew back. And if you look at that induction system, which was about six or seven feet long, I mean, it just blew up in the pilot's face, and... Uh, they caught fire and they cracked the supercharger casing and everything was very unpleasant. And uh, that was one of the things I got going, which was to do all our engine tests with a forward intake in place so that all our carburetor settings were roughly about the same on the test bed as in the air. Well, now, the point about showing you that rigmarole is that we found... Previously, engines, supercharged engines, were merely engines that had their power restored at altitude because of limitations of the fuel. In other words, they didn't really have much boost at sea level, but you simply opened up your blower until it restored the power at a predetermined altitude, 18,000 feet, 20,000 feet. What was obviously shown there was that the... Um, we could make an engine produce about double the horsepower if we had the right fuel, take off, and um, didn't have to go to enormous capacities. And by doing a lot of blower work, we found during the recent war that we could reproduce sea level power up to about 36,000 feet. And we did that by two staging the blower, having two blowers, two staging together, and to cool the charge. You see, I used alcohol in the fuel in those days simply because it was a charge cooler, and you used the latent heat of the alcohol, which was higher than the petrol or gasoline, to keep the charge temperature down, so you filled your cylinders that way. Well, Alcohol, as you know, has less heat units than gasoline, and so it was wasteful from the point of view of consumption during the war. 
uh, we had inter after coolers or intercoolers. Anyway, they were after coolers. They came, they were cooled by the engine coolant, and they were situated. The charge went through. It's like another radiator. The charge went through it. It was cooled by the engine coolant before the charge went into the cylinder. By that means, you kept your power up, and um, with double boosting, you kept your altitude up. Those contests show the influence of engine on fuel, and I want to mention this. If you, any of you remember, some of the older ones of you will remember the unsupercharged Liberty during the First World War, which gives about 400 horsepower on a fuel then we estimated to have about 58 octane. And now that engine was exactly the same capacity as the Merlin. 27 liters. And the Merlin with 100 octane or 150 grade fuel as we had laterally, which is 100 octane plus lead really, gave 2,000 horsepower. This gave 400, Liberty gave 400 horsepower for 27 liters unsupercharged on 58 octane. The Merlin gave 2,000 horsepower supercharged on 100 octane plus lead. So about a little under 50% of that increase was due to the fuel. And the rest was to supercharging it after cooling. Now the important point there was the fuel. Now just a quick run through how we developed from the biplane to the monoplane. In the 20s, there was a Schneider Trophy in 23 where the Curtis people, the Navy, the U.S. Navy, sent some Curtis biplanes over to Bournemouth, and they won the Schneider Trophy there, Bournemouth, with a fellow called Rittenhouse, was Commander Rittenhouse, or Lieutenant Rittenhouse, was a pilot of the this clean-lined uh, American Curtis biplane with the Curtis D-12 engine in, which was a very advanced liquid-cooled engine. And uh, he won it now. Ferry of Ferry Aircraft Company, Ferry, went over to America and saw these clean line biplanes and liked what he saw. He came back and designed an aeroplane called the Fox. And he had this fitted with the Curtis D-12 engine. And he threatened to take the license for the Curtis D-12 engine and build it over here. Well, the minister didn't like that one bit. So uh, what happened was Rolls-Royce produced the Kestrel, which you know, and the Kestrel eventually wasn't a much advanced engine above the D-12 because it came later. And that was the famous sort of forerunner of the Merlin and went it in the Hawker Fury and the Hart and the Fairy Firefly and such like. Then came, of course, the uh, Spitfire and the Hurricane, which had the Merlin. But all these things stem, the Merlin certainly stemmed from the work that was done in the Schneider Trophy races showing the importance of fuel. Then we introduced 87 octane fuel as a standard fuel in the Air Force in the 30s to take the place of the old 8020. 8020 had another disadvantage. Firstly, it depended upon the type and origin of the gasoline you got 
as to what the octane number was. Usually it was a Romanian-like cut gasoline, which was fairly consistent. It had 20% of benzoline, but of course 20% of benzoline with its high freezing point meant that you could freeze the thing up. And so uh, that was a danger. 87 octane had no benzoline, only had tetraethyl lead. And then we're able, just before the war, through the foresight of people like Sir Wilfred Freeman, by battening on him, he agreed that this is a 100 octane had to come. The Americans already had it. So that's how we got a 100 octane in. Now, um, Ferry actually did design, have it get an engine designed of an H-type 24-cylinder, vertical H, with separate crankshafts with uh, contra-rotating propellers, like this Fiat thing I've just shown you at the front, designed, but the ministry wouldn't take it on. It was about 1,800, to be about 1,800 horsepower. I helped Forsyth, the designer, on valves and things and pistons. And uh, I think it would have been a good engine. My own personal view, it was a better and simpler engine, more capable of development than Sabre, but the ifs and buts of this life in this highly technical thing and experimental phase, you, don't, you, you can't say. But at any rate, he had to shut down because the ministry wouldn't support him. I'm not saying the ministry was wrong. The only point was that it seemed to be a pretty good engine. But... In my opinion, I think if I had been the minister at the time, I wouldn't have shut down, but I'd taken it away from Ferry because we wanted people who had already got the aero engine technique and rather than having to get yet one more firm in to learn, there wasn't the time. And it was about the period that we were getting a bit restive about what the Germans were doing. My work between wars, I should say, dealt a lot with the Germans. As a matter of fact, when Hitler's, when the Weimar Republic went and Hitler came in as Chancellor, I gave the first talk to the reconstituted German aviation industry in the old German colonial office, which was then defunct as a colonial office. And I came back to our in air intelligence man, Archie Boyle, and said, look, this is what I've done. I'm an engineer, I'm not a politician. Now, what do I do about it? I can't pull punches exactly. He said, oh, don't pull punches. He said, don't pull punches. He said, you go on, but you tell us everything that happens. So I worked with the Germans and the French and the Italians, but mainly the Germans, on their engine development right up to the beginning of the war. I knew such people as Udet and Milch and... Met Goering occasionally, was even presented to Hitler. I don't know whether that's fame or notoriety, I never quite know that one. And uh, so we knew quite a lot about the German engines before the war. The one advantage the German engines had over us, if the Germans only been clever, as clever as us on development, they might have beaten us to it on one or two things because their engines were slightly bigger capacity than the Merlin and if they had the same development, obviously they would have given uh, more power. They also had injection, uh, cylinder injection, or mainly in the induction pipe, cylinder injection for some of their air-cooled engines. The advantage of this was, at the beginning of the war, we found our pilots as great disadvantage because if there's an enemy down there and they were coming 
in and they wanted to dive on it, the negative G effect on the carburetor shot the fuel to the top of the carburetor, and that gave a rich, uh, weak mixture cut out. The engine momentarily stalled. And that was quite serious because you lost your enemy. There's no, no two ways about it. And we eventually went rather late, but we did eventually go to a central point injector into the center, the eye of the blower. We didn't have it separately and all down the cylinder blocks. But the Germans, the reason they went was quite a different reason, really. They didn't know enough about these variable datum control carburetors, which we'd had some years of experience on. And what's more, in the first engines, they put the carburetor in the middle of the block and they pressurized the carburetor, so they made the job doubly difficult for themselves. And um, that was Junkers or Daimler Benz, and Daimler Benz had a motor cannon firing through the propeller, and so they had to put their supercharger on the side of the engine at 90 degrees to crankshaft. That's why they put the, no, it was the Dana Benz, that's why they had to put the carburetor and then have a blown carburetor block because another carburetor, carburetor on the outside of the blower, put an ugly bulge in the cowl, and that's what caused them the bother. So they went to injection, which of course they had a lot of experience of through their, a lot of their diesel work, and they won out on that, and they didn't have this negative G. We even had trouble on Lancasters during the war, because if you had a very rough, if you had a very rough runway, and these fellows were taking off like this. They had their engines half cutting out all the time with the fuel bouncing about in the float chambers of the carburetors. But eventually we got over that. Now, just before I close, I want to say we should mention some little, uh, some dates on the classic uh, civil airliner. And I named the two classic civil airliners, uh, which were the two prototypes of the classic civil airliner, as the Boeing 247 and the Douglas DC-1, or the DC-2 as we mostly know it. Now, the Boeing was built in February 1933. It was an all-metal, low-wing monoplane. And the Douglas in... Uh, July 1933, that's the DC-1, and the DC-2 in May 1934. And um, I always remember the Douglas DC-2, uh, well, we saw the DC-1. So Roy Fedden and myself saw the Douglas different times with the same year, and we came back to the ministry here, and they would hardly... Well, they were polite about it, but they didn't believe us, really, because we said, this aeroplane's got 19 or 20 pounds a square foot loading, and it's got a two-pitch propeller and uh, all that sort of thing. And while they were polite, they, uh, they were very skeptical about it, because after all, what they were comparing in their minds was the HP-42, which had 10 pounds a square foot wing loading and a fixed-pitch propeller. And I always remember the um, famous paper before this society in 1928 when Healy, Shaw and Beecham read their paper on the variable pitch propeller. Really years in advance in many ways, because it was a variable pitch, it wasn't a two pitch, uh, in advance of the Americans.
But it was too far ahead of its time. Nobody took any notice. Everybody said it'd be too heavy. And, you know, too complicated and too heavy, which always seems to be the answer of the ignorant against anything new. And so the Hinishaw and Beecham faded. Because there was a reason for that. Uh, we used uh, reduction gears for our propellers long before the Americans who had direct drive propellers. And only having 10 pounds a square foot, we didn't need a, a variable pitch propeller. They were just flying kites. I used to remember coming over the 42, it was safe enough. I think if it dove straight into the ground, you'd have got out of it. I don't know. But I do know this, that coming over from France several times against a headwind, I used to be reading a book, and then I'd look out the side and see a ship coming down this way, you see. And I'd look up ten minutes later, the ship was just a little bit further under us, but we hadn't relatively moved from it, you see. And we used to have to land at Lynn to get enough fuel to get to Croydon. But there's no question about it that the DC-1 and DC-2 were the classic, the start of the classic airliner. But there are reasons for doing all these things. And I say, low-wing loading, uh, reduction gears on our propellers were just as much an answer against having a variable pitch propeller. But of course, they had double the wing loading that we had. Now, I'm running on time. Now, I just want to say one thing. I've been asked so many times about the merits of the poppet valve versus the sleeve valve engine. And all I can say is that our experience showed in the war that both could be made equally good, but I'd rather have the poppet valve because it made a lighter job, it made a cheaper job, and if you made it reliable, you could make it reliable. Now, when Sir Roy Fedden was experimenting with engines and making very good engines between the wars, he was beset by poppet valve troubles, and then when lead came in, he got more troubles. But he didn't enclose his gear very much, and... Uh, he paid the penalty of rather poorly lubricated valves and generally rather poorly cooled valves. Now, the Armstrong City Jaguar engine, the two-valve Jaguar, was a much more advanced engine than any of the Bristol thing, but then old Sidney never believed in development, so it was always behind in development, whereas Fedden's engine was a triumph of development over design, and uh, he got it going. Early on, he started with Ricardo to uh, work on the sleeve valve, and he uh, eventually took the sleeve valve away from Ricardo because he wanted to push on with it quicker, and made a very good sleeve valve. I mean, no question about the sleeve valve being uh, an operating uh, success, but it was a heavier engine generally, and the sleeve valve did not fill cylinders any better. They always said, ah, well, you can always use a higher compression ratio with a sleeve valve than you can with a poppet valve. Well, you could, and you did, of course, but then it didn't fill the cylinders, so of course you could. And uh, I can only tell you this, that during the war, we made thousands of sleeve valve engines, we made thousands of Merlin engines. If you took the cost of an engine between two factors that didn't have the overheads of development, purely production like 
Ford's factory at Trafford Park making Merlins, uh, Bristol at Accrington, uh, Packard Merlin in America, and the Shadow Factories making the Bristol Sleeve Hercules engine. They were the same horsepower, roughly. Well, the Bristol engine cost double the cost per horsepower of the Merlin. Now, there's a good reason for that. Firstly, on an air-cooled engine, you have a higher cylinder capacity for the same horsepower. Secondly, you have forgings for your cylinders, your outer cylinders for the sleeve, and your crankcase, whereas in the Merlin we had castings, which are much cheaper, and hence the milk and the coconut, you see, it was more costly. And uh, the one time I had the opportunity of proving performance was, I don't know whether you remember, there was a revival of the old name Eagle in Roman Rolls engines just towards the end of the war, which was looked like a Sabre, but a bigger capacity engine, went in the Westland Wyvern, but it wasn't used much. And generally we washed it out because of the jet coming along. Well, now that was a sleeve valve engine. It had a smaller bore than the Merlin, but it ran up in speed, same piston speed, and I was able to check that on test with a Merlin cylinder, and there was nothing to it. In fact, the Merlin cylinder gave a better performance. And, of course, you had a less hot piston for the puppet valve because you only had the piston uh, film of oil and the cylinder and then the coolant. In the case of Steve valve, you had the piston, the oil, the sleeve, another oil film, and then the cylinder. Now, I think I've talked enough, so I will now stop my lecture. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think you, like myself, will have found the lecture very exciting. I was awfully pleased to learn from uh, Commodore Camps, how he had started this question of age and the question of getting things done and his rapid promotion in the first war when he was 18 only to 18 and more to start with. He's answered a lot of questions that I think we should have asked him, but there may well be some more. In particular, he's spoken of this old controversy of the poppet valve against the sleeve valve. And I think there are probably no more questions to be asked on that. On the other hand, I should like to know how he managed to switch his brain over from engines used in motorboats to engines used in airships and then finally in aeroplanes. Well now, he, I just asked him and he said he'd be very pleased to answer any questions you like to put to him. Why did the Americans fail to produce a, a thickly-cooled engine after the D-12, a successful one? Well, well the Rolls-Royce. They had a big air-cooled camp in America, civil certainly, and they had an awful lot of plumbing troubles in the liquid-cooled engine, which the Army didn't like, although the Army did an awful lot of experimental work on high temperature coolant to try and reduce the radiator size using pure ethylene glycol and all that sort of thing. But they went too far that way. They got too much trouble. And eventually, 
Well, they were doing, even before the war, they were doing some experiments on a single cylinder, uh, envisaging a 12-cylinder engine of 1,200 cubic inches and uh, uh, 100 horsepower per cubic inch. They're quite advanced experimentally, but the actual USAF or US Army Air Corps was then but dead against all these plumbing troubles and they thought they'd be very vulnerable in in war. Now I should have added tonight, I think I'll just take this few moments, uh, I thought somebody was asking what about the liquid versus the air-cooled engine, nobody's asked that one yet. Um, we found that the liquid-cooled engine you could pull more out of a pint pot than we could out of an air-cooled engine, that's obvious. And if you take a summary of the war experience, the liquid-cooled engine, I think, has it on performance and everything else. But where you had interdiction or ground strafing, there's no question about a liquid-cooled engine was hopeless. If you've got a bullet in your radiator, uh, you've got an engine shut down in 30 seconds almost. I always remember reading a report of a Thunderbolt pilot coming back from a strafe in uh, Burma, it was, saying that he's, he noticed a bit of vibration in his engine. And when he landed, there wasn't a lower cylinder on the engine at all. It had been shot away together with uh, some. Well, no liquid-cooled engine would have gone through that and come back 60 miles. Rolls-Royce engine, or the Canada Trophy winner, and the Wilson record in was the engine that he uh, helped the development of special tools for, and I said, is this a sprint engine? I've heard it, uh, I've read this report about sprint engine, but I've, uh, well, I don't know. Particularly, it was the sprint engine, we called the sprint engine, the one that we, the Schneider Trophy engine, we adapted to 2600 horsepower instead of 2300 horsepower for the world speed record, so it can be rightly called a sprint engine. This was the uh, horsepower from the one that actually won the Yes. The one that uh, drove was 23.50 horsepower, and the one that did the sprint, the world speed record, was 26.50. From the original 800 horsepower, 860 horsepower prototype. It was a sprint engine, quite separate, because we sent a split new, or Rolls-Royce sent a split new engine down from Derby as soon as we completed our fuel tests and checked the engine would do the job we actually then they built a new engine they did a check run on it just to get the horsepower and it was put on they had a Phantom 1 chassis at Rolls-Royce which they had a cradle on and there are various reports about the records done between Derby and Calshot I know I can't remember the times now, but uh, they went, they toured through one village and were caught by the police at about 80 miles an hour. But we used to life these engines in about seven hours, arbitrarily. Then they used to get pulled out. Uh, Derby used to get phoned. Derby would send down a new engine, pick up the old engine, and uh, no, that was a sprint engine. It was. Uh, the race engines weren't used again for the speed record, although they were stripped and used. That is quite an issue. Was it in fact the race engine, or was it another one put in there? Well, exactly the same. I might say it's exactly the same as a race engine, except it was new and it hadn't had any seven hours on it. Well, once upon a time, you see, the Schneider Trophy, being a marine trophy,
you had to moor the, the seaplanes out the day before the race. Uh, and uh, why, God knows, because they wouldn't have stood any sea. But usually half of them used to f leak in the floats. It was a race to get them in. Uh, so they hadn't sunk. And then the last two, or the last one, certainly, they waived that. The Royal Aero Club waived that requirement. The worst time we had was on the 29 Schneider Trophy, when Lovesey, who was the king of development at Rolls-Royce, he was down at Kalshot all the time. They were changing the... They put the race engines in. That's always nerve-wracking, because you put the race engines in, and you only run them up, you don't fly them. And they'd run these engines up, and Lovesey was looking at the plugs, and they found a bit of aluminium on one of the plugs, and so... This was rather disturbing, so they had to change, we had to go to the stewards of the Royal Aero Club to find out whether we were allowed to change an engine. We weren't allowed to change an engine, we were allowed to change a bit of an engine, so that meant we could take the blocks off. So there about 300 of the Royal Special Department came down to see the race set the night before, and myself, Hives, Lapin, and a few others went all round Southampton to get the fellow because there was the expert on changing uh, blocks there, you see. Well, we found him in pubs drinking and very lively, and we got them down, and they worked all night long and changed this block. And sure enough, we found a piston picked up on it. And... Uh, they ran up the next morning, and it was Waghorn's machine. We didn't tell him about it. And uh, uh, they ran up the next morning, and uh, he won the race. We only told him afterwards. Chairman, Waghorn will thank say a few words about two other developments in the early 1940s. The Germans did a lot on diesels, as you well know, and the Junkers. And Napiers took the license for the Junker engine over here, but they never did very much on it. The Junker JU88, I think it was, I can't remember the numbers now, it shows my advancing age, but it's about that. It's a twin engine. It worked very well. I flew into it a number of times, but there didn't seem any particular advance in it, because you see, the diesel engine only burns about 80%. I know they do better nowadays, but I'm talking about then. They only burn about 80% of the air that they take into the cylinders, so you can always assume you've got 20% less capacity or you've got to make an engine 20% bigger. And there wasn't seen to be much advantage about it. And uh, from a war point of view, at that period, the question of getting quantity of fuel depended rather on the motor car and the refining that gave petrol to the motor car. That was what happened. Rolls-Royce made a two-stroke engine during the war. It had essentially low priority. It worked all right. It sounded awfully busy while it was working, but it's all right. But it, uh, you see, about that time, we were getting into the jet then, and the piston engine was already coming out of the fighter side. We could see it. Spoke of the negative G effect on the, the float chamber causing weak cuts and burning. And you said that uh, you eventually got over the trouble. I take it you were the introduction of the negative G on the turn valve. 
on the third uh, chamber of the morning? Or are you implying that this wasn't fully successful in overcoming? It wasn't fully successful. Ah. It wasn't fully successful. Then she went to inject the You went to direct it. That's what I was getting. Yes, you injector for the fighter Merlins. And we had the Bendix injector for the Packard built Merlins, which were mainly used, well, later used, of course, in the Mustang, but mainly used in those days for the bomber engines. And then Bristol Hercules, uh, Bristol engines had the Hobson RAE injector developed by Miss Whatnot at, uh, at, at uh, Schilling, the Schilling, yes. Yeah. As a matter of interest, can you tell me what was done about the fuel? Well, they used, used a little bit better fuel then, but you see, a turbo supercharger does put a bit of back pressure on it, but uh, it does regain quite a lot of power because you're losing about 26 or 30% of your power. But uh, they had improved the fuel a lot in the 20s, you know, they're up to about 70 octane in the fuel on those sort of engines at that period. Where the Americans won against us, you see, we had the mechanically driven blower before the Americans. We had reduction gears before the Americans. And they used the turbo blower, but they would very cleverly put the turbine part of the blower on the side of the machine so it got right in the slipstream. The original turbo blower that was put on the Napier was rather shielded by a lot of things, so it just sort of... A few years ago, I had a talk here with Adolphus Green. He's then about 95, he told me. And he also told me that after building his aero engines, he was building engines for motor torpedo boats in World War I. I wonder if Air Commodore Banks could tell us anything about Green's aero engines and possibly his torpedo boat engine? Well, yes, I can. I can tell you a hell of a lot, but I don't think it would be very complimentary. Uh, <laughs> Green, old man Green, did a four-cylinder and a six-cylinder engine, which Cody flew with and Bert Hinkler later in the four-cylinder version. And they were quite sound, uh, low-performance engines. Then he built, during the war, intending for aircraft, but they couldn't be used. It was a 250 to 300 horsepower 12-cylinder V engine. And we had them in the motorboats, God help us. And uh, it had a crankshaft like a tuning fork, and it used to do this. And you've e I've even seen a green crankshaft break like a carrot if the cylinder missed. If the right cylinder missed, it would break, break the shear of the crankshaft on torsional vibration. Uh, they were, as long as you didn't get on the critical, they were not too bad. But they were just too big for their boots in a way. I liked the old man, he was quite an honest old man, and uh, he did, in the early days of Cody, and I say in that little four-cylinder green, it was quite a nice thing. It was a low-rated thing like a gypsy and didn't come to much harm. Try and get some horsepower of it in the form of a 12-cylinder engine now. Well, I think we must thank the Commodore very much, not only for telling us about the engines and about the improvements that he got from the fuels, but also for the little personal remarks he's made about 
some of the men some of us have met and also some of the men we've read about. It's very nice to have a candid opinion of somebody else right or wrong and I've not the slightest doubt that our Commodore in almost every case was quite right. So will you in the usual way tell him how much we've appreciated his interesting and exciting lecture. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you ladies and gentlemen.